0: Rebecca is a committing editor at the Guardian Saturday Magazine and staff writer at Another Gaze. Uh, Her writing has appeared in the Financial Times, The Right Review, and The Nation. So please put your hands together for Rebecca and the rest of our panel.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming here today and and making the time to come this morning. Um, It will be an amazing chat with some some brilliant debut authors, Um, and we'll be all talking all about nonfiction, the body, um, and the meaning of the personal is political. Um, So I'll introduce the three brilliant authors I have with me here, Um, they'll read an extract from their books. Um, I'll kick off with the Q&A, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, So Alice Hattrick's criticism and interviews have appeared in publications such as Freeze Magazine, Art Review, and The White Review. Alice's work has most recently been included in Whitechapel documents of contemporary art, health, um, and mind searching for yours. They are the co-producer of Access Docs for Artists, a resource for disabled and or chronically ill artists, curators, and writers made in collaboration with artists Leah Clements and Lizzie Rose. In 2016, they were shortlisted for the Fitzcarraldo Essay Prize. Ill Feelings is their first book. Um, And Alice will be starting us off with an extract from *Idle Feelings Now.
2: Every day that starts, let's let's just try to have a better day than yesterday, ends in a worse one. Who gave me this shitty advice? Or did I make it up? Why am I setting myself such a high standard? My mother says, I'm just going to write today off. It will never be different, I say. Tomorrow will probably not be better, it might well be worse. We cannot keep writing days off as if our normal is anything other than this, as if we should be doing more with our time. The chronic and chronic illness comes from the Greek chronos, meaning time, an abstract, never-ending concept. I do not say, this is your internalised ableism talking. I'm sure this tendency would be called phonic perfectionism by someone who does not know her or us. Normal is different when you live on the precipice, on the edge of both wellness and illness. It is living in crip time, warped, queer, endlessly changed. Alison Kafer's definition of crip time is extra time. Crip or sick time is queer, a departure from straight time, where the straight time means a firm delineation between past, present, and future, or an expectation of linear development from dependent childhood to independent reproductive adulthood. Crypt time is different to productive kinds of time, which is really just one narrow, straight, restrictive version of time. Crypt time is straight time extended, stretched out, bent, warped. Crypt time is time that cannot be straightened out. Crypt time is the time of being in hospital for prolonged periods or institutionalized or in bed, in your home, most of the time. You can lose a lot of time when you're ill, but you also need more time to do things. You do things slowly, in waves rather than stages. Being crip, sick, ill, disabled, changes your experience of time. The present takes on more urgency as the future shrinks, capabilities. The past becomes a mix of potential causes of one's present illness, or a succession of wasted time. The future is marked in increments, treatment, and survival, even as the future becomes more tenuous. There aren't really specific times of day, unless they are the times you take your medication, or even days of the week. No Tuesday lunch times, no Saturday nights. Last week and in a few months' time don't really exist. All of this means the task of having a better day than yesterday is even more impossible. There are no days, no weeks, no yesterday. So what then is trying? What is bettering, let alone today or tomorrow? When there is no straight time, there is no way of measuring these things. The days really are really just mornings anyway. What feels like a smaller and smaller window of being able to stand up or sit, which happens sooner rather than later. Crip time is failed productive time, the time of not doing and potential undoing. Crip time reveals itself when you think about the future. Do you see a future in which you might get better? Or do you see one in which things might be different, but you'll never be cured? Crypt time is failing to make the most of your time. It is failing to fulfill normative expectations of using your time wisely. Crypt time is time spent in and with the body-mind, described by Ginny as her companion in Virginia Woolf's The Waves, always sending its signals, the rough black no, golden come, in rapid running arrows of sensation. It is a night kind of time for Virginia too, obscuring sights and enhancing the other senses, We are out of doors, night opens, night traversed by wandering moths. I smell roses, I smell violets, I see red and blue, just hidden. Crip time is what she describes in her diaries as partly mystical. Something happens in my mind. When you live alone as a crip, your body is your only companion, where all desires and pains are focused, and you cannot be redirected. They have nowhere else to go. Your conversation with it, a source of both conflict and joy. Sickness sickness changes time and the pace of life, and in doing so, it changes what health is. Not a system, but a scale, not a battle, but a balance or a flow. (laughs) Um,
1: Thank you so much for that, Alice, and we'll bring you into conversation with with the extract later. Um, Next uh, is Amber Hussein. Next to me is, she's a writer, academic publisher, and comrade. Um, Her (laughs) essays and criticism appear or are forthcoming in 3AM, The Believer, London Review of Books Online, LA Review of Books, Radical Philosophy, and The White Review. Um, Replace Me is an essay and book on work, desire, and the fear of being replaced, Um, and it's her first book. And you'll read an extract from that now.
3: Thank, oh, thanks, Rebecca. Can, can you hear me? Um, this, yeah, so this bit is not about fear of being replaced exactly, but it's kind of more about some of the fantasies of uh, replacement that emanate from that fear. Um, and I am going to have to skip around a little bit to make this work, so I hope that it does. Um <clears throat> The late artist Helen Chadwick's installation, Blood Hyphen, first shown in 1988, but restaged and screened since, distills the electrifying force of introspection that medical technology can bring. The original piece involved projection of the artist's cervical cells directly onto the walls of a Clerkenwell chapel. Splashing this feat of microscopy across territory once reserved for the divine, Blood, hyphen, is a secular monument to the scientific breakdown of barriers to looking inside oneself. Yet perhaps on the basis of my own familiarity with regular cervical screenings, a phenomenal medical offering that can nevertheless be anxiously loaded for the person screened, blood, hyphen, speaks to me less of godlike sophistication than of a troubling presence of the godly and pure in discourse of the feminized body. Here, old values, typically the kind that discipline women and girls, not that women and girls are the only people who have cervixes, um, sorry, infiltrate the scene of novelty in genuine medical progress. In 1942, an Italian physician conducting a study on the prevalence of uterine cancer found the groups most free from disease to be virgins and nuns, an opportune basis for casting that illness into the shades of the corrupted. When in 2006, the first licenses for vaccines against, uh, protecting against human papillomavirus, the largely sexually transmitted disease virus that causes most cases of cervical cancer were issued in the USA, HPV became a crucible of angst around young girls' sexual activity, whether protected and consensual or not. From the Christian right, they issued anti-vax lobbies. From the center, they issued a gendered counter-discourse in which mothers, not fathers, were encouraged to vaccinate their daughters, but never their sons. All seemed to ask that women remain on both a physical and spiritual level, guardians of the boundaries that preserved their inner selves from outside contamination. Cervical changes that warrant investigation tend to suggest an unlikely but possible crawl toward cancer rather than cancer itself. Doctors and nurses will trace over a period of years the progression of a set of cells, uh, but intervention is only necessary in cases of serious escalation. The receptionist who booked me in for my first biopsy reassured me that I should think of these appointments as a matter of well-being as opposed to a crisis of health. Yet the language of wellness, however proper to this context, has proven in its larger context to be less a reassurance than an invitation to perpetual self-scrutiny. Don't even worry about it, the doctor didn't say. (laughs) When I was first shown the precancerous damage to my own cervical cells blown up into an abstraction on a hospital screen, the gynecologist warned me that I ought to take heed of the patio of crazy paving covering the entrance to my womb. When I asked what this might mean, in practice, he suggested, Rilke-like, that I had to change my life. So as though on a spiritual cleanliness crusade, and despite in some sense knowing better, I have found myself studying the progression of other's precancerous cells, intent on locating some key to the purification, the healthy replacement of my own. Uh, Vaccinated as I had been, in fact, thanks to both my parents, it seemed to me the fault for any viral damage would always be my own, having failed to abstain from the sexual act during which I presumably contracted it. Though tediously and suspiciously couched in the language of empowerment, narratives of purity were everywhere and had won the day by default. The nurse who was present to that first appointment reassured me that it would have taken something like a full body condom to avoid the moment of infection. This nevertheless prompted me to wonder if that would have been so hard. In Tessa Moshweg's 2018 novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, a young woman sets to plotting her own cellular transformation a project of total overhaul, she believes, will change her life. The book has been hailed by many as exemplary of a certain millennial affect. On a narrative level, it describes an affluent New Yorker's attempt to escape her own correctly identified anhedonia by means of a nonchalant scheme of self-purification. Having acquired a panoply of sedatives from an unscrupulous doctor, the, the unnamed narrator's plan is to restore herself to factory settings, the means by which she'll do this is through several months of enforced continuous sleep. I knew in my heart, she explains, that when I'd slept enough, I'd be renewed, reborn. I would be a whole new person. Every one of my cells regenerated enough times that the old cells were just distant, foggy memories. The narrator is surely aware that accumulated hours of sleep, much like accumulations of prescription drugs, offer no such marginal utility as commodified healthcare suggests. Health, unlike the ideal commodity, cannot be reduced to a quantified series of replaceable, exchangeable units. Any more than rebirth can be reduced to the replacement of cells. If we experience no diminishing returns as we multiply our prescriptions, it is because there will never be enough to take us to the state we are seeking. The state we are seeking is not a question of enough, yet we want it with such force that will convince ourselves
1: it is. Thank you for that, Amber. Um, And last up, we've got Adam Smith, um, the author of Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. Adam's also the co-producer on the Logbooks podcast, literature programmer with Fringe Queer Film and Arts Festival, and he is always writing a novel. Um, But for (laughs) now, you'll read from Deep Sniff.
4: Thank you, Rebecca. Um, Hi, everyone. My extract is in two parts and they are teetering on pleasure and pain. This first one talks about a doctor called Thomas Lauder Brunton, who in in 1867 tried a substance called amyl nitrite on a patient that was suffering with angina pain. And amyl nitrite is the thing that became poppers, a drug that people sniff when they're having sex now, well, and for a century. When Brunton met him... His patient William had recently been hit by a dull, heavy pain about the left nipple every three days or so, lasting for at least half an hour. The pain had come on after years of infrequent attacks ever since he'd suffered from rheumatism as a child. After a three-week hospital stay earlier in the spring, William was back just before Christmas. Doctors gave him aconite, which slows the heart rate, and digitalis. When neither worked, Brunton gave him brandy. The strong stuff didn't help either, so there was only one thing for it. The experiment was not a stab in the dark. Brunton acted in a way that was consistent with his wishes to take basic research from the lab to the bedside, and only with a decent understanding of the actual effect on the body. He had read in the work of another scientist that amyl nitrite dilated blood vessels and had even discussed the effect with his colleague in Edinburgh, Arthur Gamgee, who had made some unpublished measurements of this effect. Brunton obtained some amyl nitrite from Gamgee, who made it for him, and consent for an experiment from his supervising physician. And this is how Brunton came to give his patient, William, amyl nitrite. On March the 12th, 1867, Brunton observed, the pain came on as usual at 3 a.m. A few drops of nitrite of amyl were put on a towel and inhaled by the patient. The primary effect noticed was a suffusion of the face, and the patient felt a glow over his face and chest. The pain disappeared almost simultaneously with the occurrence of these phenomena, but returned in three minutes. He then inhaled five drops more. The pain again disappeared and did not return. The relief did nothing to solve the underlying problem, but it certainly eased the pain. The doctor seemed to flip-flop between making William sniff amyl nitrite and giving him a couple of fingers of brandy. But for sure, the amyl nitrite worked. William, sorry, Brunton wrote that the pain came on night after night and always disappeared when William inhaled the vapor rising from a towel soaked in amyl nitrite. Within a month, they had found a new method of inhalation, one that Popper's pigs today might recognize. On April the 10th, Brunton observed, patient continues to have the pain every night, and instead of hailing the nitrite of amyl from a cloth, does so from the bottle. Two or three inhalations only suffice to relieve the pain. The effect of amyl nitrite on Brunton's patient, seemed magic. The singer prefers shadow. I can barely see his face. When there is light in the show, it flashes from behind him. I'm 30 meters away from the stage, bodies knocking against me, ready for a rush. I brought poppers with me because I first heard this music used illegally on a porn compilation. The maker of the video had overlaid the clips with text and timed instructions on when to sniff Here come the same beats now, produced live. Stage smoke clots the air. In the darkness, the three musicians are making a sound named trust. The singer's slithering lyrics are about shame taking hold and a promise of hope without shame. The music is clear, pure, unencumbered. The sound is a laser beam through the smoke. I stop trying to use my eyes, and I feel the swell of the people around me. One is Jose, whose body moves with mine. We are nudged by others, too, and by the sound made on the stage, darkness and bliss. The singer's weird falsetto is a comfort and a connection. He says he is mercy, he is muscle, and this is how he touches his audience. Jose and I sniff poppers. Our bodies press. Everything is irresistible. Jose's hands, then lips, then skin. Jose and I are groping each other as the rush suffuses our bodies. This is a momentary world the few seconds of rush, the 90 minutes of the show, it will all dissipate, and the air outside will cloud everything once again. For now, in this moment, it is a shameless world, imagined by dark figures on a stage, born through smoke, a promise made real. It feels like grabbing something from the future, grabbing a few seconds of who we want to be, we become our potential, no suffering, only pleasure. The sensation is so, so brief.
1: And thanks so much, Adam. Um, and I'll start with a few questions before opening it up to you. Um, so to take us back to the title of this event um, on the embodied essay, um, I wanted to ask all three of you what that meant um, to you specifically and how that differentiates from the more common term, personal essay. Um, so who wants to start with that? <laughs> I might pick on you, Amber. Oh,
3: okay. <laughs> okay um, I think... I think, well, I think it's quite a good alternative framing to the personal essay, I guess, because the personal essay uh, can often be sort of misassociated with something like maybe mm, myopic <laughs> or um, kind of trivial, um, whereas thinking of it as maybe embodied is is interesting in that, I guess if, if, if a personal essay does have a point, um, it part of that point for me is to kind of puncture or um, disrupt in some way the kind of dominant ways we have of talking about the world or talking about life. Um, And most of those ways that, that I think we have inherited are to do with observing life and the body from without. So kind of the language of like medical institutions or like um, you know, the language of population or, um, or of the economy and stuff like this. So maybe thinking about what it is, um, thinking about writing from within a, a body is kind of uh, an interesting way of trying to get around that and make new kind of um, observations, new like kind of modes of expression, this kind of thing. So I think, yeah, that's, that's maybe what that means to me um very yeah it's a difficult thing Mm -hmm. to difficult thing to do
1: because that is the language we have but in your extract you know you do share your personal story about that then relates to a work of art you're seeing Mm. and then um a book you're reading so it's sort of seeing your story in conversation with these other things out there yeah absolutely
3: so it's like yeah in a sense you have to start from maybe the personal in that way but then It's about you know how bodies relate to other bodies, this kind of thing. Mm. I don't know if anyone (laughs) (laughs) anyone disagrees with that. (laughs) No,
4: I don't disagree. I I think of it as a an attempt to get closer to the experience of of living in a body and conveying that to the reader, because an you know. Because we're talking about an essay, we're talking about writers, and we're talking about words, writing, and all of these things are basically useless at describing the experience of a body. I think, mm. um, and I think that we all, you know, we all feel what our bodies are like, what our bodies are going through, and then when we come to verbalize that, it's often very difficult, and it's difficult to help another person to understand what the specific local experience that we're having is, mm. and. Um, Alice's book does that really well in talking about pain and conversations with doctors mm. um, and fatigue and, and things like that. And so, for me, Embodied Essay is, um, I guess, like a... And I wasn't thinking about the phrase when I was writing the book. I was <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's kind of come up for this event, which is great. So for me, it's, it's, a, it's like, I a, 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 a guess, a dedication to that, trying to get as close as possible to describing the experience of having a body and through that to connect to the reader.
3: Mm. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I think in in a kind of medical setting, um, as soon as you like enter that space, you have to use a Mm -hmm. whole new lexicon Um, and the way that your body is measured and tested and you know, prodded and poked or whatever, like it, it, it's the medicalized body, it's not your own anymore. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of um, and they're just the words that you have to use to describe your symptoms rather mm-hmm. than just like your sensations or your feelings, mm-hmm. um, you have to kind of translate what you're actually feeling into mm-hmm. something that's going to make sense in the framework of a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you say the wrong thing, then you might end up going down the path of, um, you know, a, diff- a different path or something. But in, in general, if you go into a medical situation and you use, like, how you would describe how you're feeling to, like, yourself in that situation, um, you will almost be, like, written off as... I guess like your own account of your feelings is like inherently distrustful or like it's not uh, legitimate so that's why I was like spent a lot of time just noting down things that my mum would say to me to describe how she was feeling and then I would look at her because I'm nosy (laughs) and terrible uh, (laughs) child (laughs) I would go through I was like going through all these documents that she like kept in her Health archive, um, captures them just like on the on the, her like kitchen table. It's almost like she wanted me to look through <laughs> all this stuff. Um, so I would like be comparing like this this person who's like recounting their history of illness in a medical situation, and all these documents are about the, her like uh, diagnosis and treatment, and like trying to get back on benefits and this kind of stuff um like the language she was using and that was like completely like just totally different to the language she was using with me so to me it's like what can those what, what like if you take that language of like my heart feels like this or like I feel like I've been hit by a truck or I feel like I'm falling and I'm never gonna get up again or whatever these things are if you go into a To a doctor and say that they'll be like what there's nothing i can do for you because you're just telling me vague sensations this is not Mm. helpful Mm. um so i was kind of more interested in like thinking about what those sensations like the way we describe them or like the metaphors that we use like how we can kind of reclaim those Mm. as legitimate ways of talking about our own bodies so Mm. that they can be not just the medicalized body they can like be ours again
4: i was i had a conversation recently with an elderly friend who has lots and lots of uh, health um, uh, problems and also a housing problem most recently, and um, and he was talking about his conversation with the council about these things and what support he needed, and um, we kind of figured out that he has to use the word vulnerable person, and he was like, but I'm not, I'm a warrior queen. <laughs> and I was like, I know, but you have to say you have to say you're a vulnerable person because they won't understand Warrior Queen.
2: Yeah, yeah. Also, you, you're just you're almost trained to go, No, I'm not. I'm fine. Yeah. Everyone in my family does this. And it's like, yeah. you know, it's like oh, of course I can do that. I do that all the time. And it's yeah. like that's not actually helpful here. Yeah. To like resist mm. in that space to like resist yeah. the vulnerability that you feel. Uh, is not actually suitable in that space because you just won't get the help that you need so yeah yeah, the language is really interesting Mm.
1: yeah i wanted to pick up on the idea of um shame which all of you kind of discussed to some degree on your books whether Amber, that's the shame of you know going to these these dead-end jobs and (laughs) 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 being like um you know a, a human drone every day or or the shame of you know Encountering these medical institutions and feeling like the language you want to understand yourself is is, is just not the language that's accepted. Um, so when when writing your books, how and you know I think there is sometimes a sense of shame that comes with personal exposure or just writing about the self. Um, so yeah, just writing your books. You know, Alice, you you said that shame is, can be a valuable emotion, which is quite an interesting way of seeing it. Um, what did you mean by that?
2: I think, um, well, I, I'm, well, there's a point in this book when I'm kind of, like, thinking about my childhood and thinking about those years of, uh, I was first diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome when I was 10. So it was just before secondary school. Um, so I spent my, like, teenage years, like, with this na- this kind of label, but then mm-hmm. I wasn't really allowed to think about it or like I wasn't, I wasn't to be encouraged. Um, so I had to kind of just sort of reckon with this basically, this idea of like a hidden disability or a hidden illness, invisible illness. Um, but then also it, I wasn't even allowed to like, to, I didn't really feel like I could talk about it or really ask for help. So, in the context of thinking about shame and shame, you know, shame is this fear of being seen as, a one, as one definition of shame. It's about being seen, it's about uh, being exposed, but it's also, yes, yeah, very much about making a part of yourself visible and the fear of that, of people seeing something in you that you don't want to be seen. Um, so, for me, it was, it is a valuable emotion because when I felt shame as a child, I was scared uh, to, to ask for help, to show my, vulner- my vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, but that vulnerability was nothing to be ashamed of really, or it wasn't really anything to be feared. The reason why I was scared was because of how I would be responded to, not anything in me that I thought was wrong, if that makes sense. So it was very much about how you're being seen by someone else. Um, And I found when I was a child, if I ever asked for help innocently, um, I would be dismissed or there would be a letter sent to somebody saying, don't, don't, you know, don't encourage them. They don't, they don't need to take time off from school. They just think they do. And it's better if they, you know, they try and keep up with everyone else rather than actually being like, okay, what do you need? Mm-hmm. But I think that's fundamentally how we treat children, yeah. is that anything that they might be saying, again, is distrustful, is totally about gender, because I was, you know, the little girl who, mm-hmm. I was very, very small as well. <laughs> so it's like, she, she, she doesn't know what she needs, like mm-hmm. she can't possibly know. Um, I was always like mimicking my mother, who was the hysterical single mother, Um, so yeah, all these roles, I think like we didn't fit into the roles and that that, that is like inherently kind of shameful, but Mm. yeah, but but I found it useful as an adult to think about shame as useful because it makes me understand that experience or understand that me as a child more because I can tell that it was a very reasonable reaction to feel shame when you feel like you're exposing something about yourself and then everyone's like ugh no (laughs) put it away go away (laughs) stop troubling stop being trouble yeah yeah
1: and adam the kind of history of of poppers is always that sort of a history of socially induced shame as well Um, but you bring a lot of you kind of write against it as well and sort of foreground the pleasure that comes out of that
4: yeah i mean it's kind of the book is sort of like a naked celebration of of pleasure uh, in a way, and um, one pleasure can come from shedding the shame that you might feel about your desires or about your body um, and what your body wants to do and things like that. Um, And I think that that just came out of my thinking about poppers and what poppers as a drug does. It's the same with lots of drugs, actually you know, they um, suppress our inhibitions for a while, or they free us from our inhibitions for a while. And um, uh, in the case of poppers, they can facilitate sex or actually make you horny, and um, you become this... You are... You, 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 you're, um, you're the same person. I don't want to say you become another person, because you are the same person, but it's, um, you're a more expanded version of the same person. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny when you think about
1: <laughs> um,
4: uh, yeah so <laughs> so, sh- so yeah um, uh, I mean the reason why that's funny is also because of the sex that, I'm, that mm-hmm. we're all thinking about now yeah. and we're in a church <laughs> and
1: speaking about shame
4: yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. that's the, the, you know humour is often an inversion of that of, of, of something and we all just did it Collectively.
3: I did notice that we both wrote about church, like you know churches um, as a kind of way into like thinking about the ways that people are made to feel shame. Mm. Like yeah, which is that that's mm. a useful thing that I really took from your book was mm. that like you know trying to map out the ways in which which people are made to feel shame for specific um, reasons mm. <laughs> um, and yeah that was there't was, there, was there was an another kind of when you first asked this, I was mm-hmm. thinking like oh, shame is a valuable <coughs> emotion that that is valuable as something to then to like push against um, and yeah I do also write about various ways in which um, you know uh, that there's like a certain shame around being made to feel replaceable in various different contexts but um also, like a kind of shame and complicity that, um, you know, being a, like participating in this kind of neoliberal ideology um, makes you feel, which might also be useful, like up to a point, but then um, I don't think it's useful to, I don't think it's useful to do that through writing as a way of kind of wall- wallowing mm-hmm. in you know, the shame and the guilt. Like, it's only useful if it's helping you kind of think through ways of living otherwise or like, you know, trying to create a different world. Um, but yeah, you no, know, that's such an interesting
1: idea. Um, and before I open it up um, to you guys, I wanted to move from shame to, to freedom. Um, and so Amber, in so towards the end of the extract you read out, um, mm. you mentioned, you know, one fictional character's attempt to within capitalism, find some kind of freedom. And it's about like making the body this like, you know, very well slept, drugged out individual. <laughs> um, and you kind of point out the limits of that. I mean, you know, she's ultimately just getting a lot of sleep. She's, she's not transforming um, material conditions out there. Um, and you write also in your book about the trap of wanting to be very special. Um, of, you know, <laughs> the graduate who's, who's sort of come out of 2010, internalized the idea from the world that all you need to do is work really hard, get good grades, get a good job, and freedom will come.
2: Mm.
1: Um, so I wanted to ask you about, you know, in contrast to these examples that have its own limitations, um, what kind of freedom are you thinking of when you're writing Replace Me?
3: Um, well, the The book is kind of about how, uh, well, ultimately like the sort of, the limits that a certain kind of capitalist realism Mm -hmm. or neoliberalism um, places on imagination, Um, and yeah, so it's kind of about how hard it is to imagine something different, imagine being free. And I don't think that it's something that necessarily an essay can resolve, but I think that it did really help me to think about what kind of uh, what kind of like practices um, might bring about a freer world. Um, you know, using um, the the practices whereby you know replace replaceability has been used as a weapon um, as a way of um, you know thinking thinking against that. Um, and I do think that um, you know there are certain things. It's 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 impossible to say to an extent like what a what what a free world would look like. But I think that you know if we were to engage more in certain practices of you know political organizing or mutual caregiving or um, you know practices of abolition, like of of private property, of, of borders, of, uh, you know, carcerality um, and, you know, all of these kinds of things, uh, you know, experimental, experimenting with different ways of living, living together, experimenting with different forms of kinship, um, these are all things that might, you know, bring about a, a different and freer world. Uh, I don't know what it would look like, but I imagine that it would look different to this this like situation in in which you know um, people want to be special and, mm-hmm. re- and 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 irreplaceable and all of this and like really the only thing that we have in common is our is like our loneliness.
1: If I do my job well enough yeah. I'll finally yeah. 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 Sorry, that was a very long answer but uh. <laughs> that was a great there's a great answer. Um, thank you so much. Um, and I'll open this up to the audience.
0: Um, thanks. This might be a slightly half-formed question so <laughs> tell me if it doesn't make sense. Um, uh, you were all talking about like the difficulty of explaining the feelings and sensations in writing, particularly, and, and in language, which I think is really interesting. And Amber, you were talking about that's particularly difficult because we often use these like institutional language and that kind of thing. So I was wondering about um, what you think about the effect of like maybe it's form or format on that, because I think a number of you have written like shorter form essays in like a publication versus a book. Um, I think some of you have written like uh, essays in kind of journalistic gen- journalism magazines or newspapers or that kind of thing. Do you think, um, is, there, is there like more freedom in the book format because you kind of have that more independence? Yeah, what do you think the, the impact, I guess, of the different formats is on being able to, to explain those sensations and stuff? <laughs> yeah.
4: Um, Yeah, I think that the book is just, um, you know, one of the best technologies that we've ever invented. Um, And it's still with us. And it's a great technology for the reader. It's portable. Uh, It can zap into their brain immediately. And it's a great technology for a writer because of what you're hinting at, which is the freedom that it gives you um, within the limitations of language, like we talked at the beginning, uh, to um, to explore these things. And if you've got a good publisher, um, <laughs> then and you know, and a good editor, then uh, you can really, I think, um, you can really use the the scope and the space in a book to to do something quite special, which is to like really properly explore the feeling of having a body or the, or the feelings and the experiences that we've all been talking about. And I think that um, there's just a lot more independence in that than if you were publishing even a long feature article in a magazine or a newspaper or something. It feels like, the, the, in a way, like the stakes are higher for, for that form of publishing, um, and there are more... There's less independence, I, I feel, regardless of the publication. Um, that's, that's, that's my feeling. And so I'm really grateful and privileged to have been able to write this book because um, I just could write what I wanted and, and change the form a bit. And not, I wasn't constrained by what an essay was mm. as well. Um, I thought of the chapters as essays originally, and then my publisher said, don't call them essays because it's harder to sell essays. <laughs> oh. like, okay, well, fine, they're chapters then, whatever. Um, and then I was like, yeah, but I also want write, to write like." little um, italicized passages of like me doing things with my body or whatever, um, that's a euphemism. And um, so, that, yeah, that was fine as well. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's, I think, yes, there's a magic about the right publisher and a good editor and all of that stuff about giving you the freedom, but I do think there's something inherently more free in the book form. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know whether you two think well, so. I was just
2: thinking how like, I write an essay that's like three thousand five thousand words or whatever mm-hmm. yeah. it's like one idea yeah like that's the and which is really satisfying yeah because it's like you know this is this is the idea this is what you're thinking through this is what i'm experiencing bodily and this is what i you know i'm thinking through in my body um and then that's that's what is you're exploring one idea, and mm. the, where you get to the end of that, or the essay that you get at the end, is like evidence of your exploration, or like what you've learned through the time of writing it. Mm. Um, but that might be like a month or something, mm. whereas mm. the book it's like, the, it for me, or like my, this, my book is like four years of thinking through my body, or mm. thinking, you know. So like, it's not just more, <laughs> it's it's, it, it can contain lots of more ideas because it just has more time in it as well it also like it also gives
3: the, the the reader more of an opportunity to think with you like i was thinking that mm. definitely when um reading your book i felt like was a real process of thinking through loads of different things but also just picking and reading like that is that it's like, it's really hard when you're trying to pull something out of something that has yeah, so many parts in it, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. like, what am I? What can I really communicate in three minutes or whatever?
4: Well, just enough so that they are teased so that they go to and to buy, buy the, the, the book. book. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely.
4: Yeah,